everybody, and welcome to the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast. We're come rain, shine, or anything in between. We're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. I'm Ace Edwards, right alongside Connor Balthazar. And welcome to the preview show for the primetime matchup between your Kansas State Wildcats and the Oklahoma Sooners. If you didn't know, this is a game that's kicking off on, is it six or seven? I think it's seven. Seven. Yeah, 7 p.m. on Fox, nationally broadcast game. It's going to be a big one. It's going to be a big one. And I know that confidence, at least in the fan base, seems to be at an all-time low. But there are a couple things in this scouting report that maybe can give you just a little bit of hope. But before we go straight into that, we're going to dive into their 2021 stats, which was last year. I'll take offense and Connor will take you for defense, but I'll start off with the offense. They were an 11 and two team last year at the seven and two conference record, 2,438 rushing yards, 5.4 per attempt, 29 rushing touchdowns, 3,425 passing yards at 8.5 per attempt, 69.23% completion percentage, 32 passing touchdowns to nine interceptions, 40.74% in the third down percentage, which was 53rd in the FBS. And then the biggest number, which is the red zone scoring percentage, which was 75.8 in touchdowns, 96.7 in total scoring, which was first and best in FBS. 33 sacks allowed, averaging 39.08 points per game and 508.4. So this was a... Again, as Oklahoma tends to be, especially when, you know, they had their old head coach in Lincoln Riley, they were a very prolific offensive team. You can see that they did most of their damage through the air, but now things might be changing up a little bit, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Connor, you have defense. Yeah, so defensively, they gave up 25.77 points per game last year for a total of 335 uh, points against them passing yards throughout the whole year just a little over 3400 at 3403 passing touchdowns they gave up 26 of them 1678 rushing yards 15 touchdowns on the ground against them and then third down percentage was 39.75 percent on defense that was 71st in fbs and then red zone percentage um you have a 61.7 percent touchdown rate and an 85.1 percent scoring rate in the red zone that's tied for 80th and fbs 11 interceptions it says 28 fumbles i don't know if that's right like that's pretty high unless like that's just forced and not it's forced 28 that's still a ton of forced fumbles that's but i I, I, I could i could believe forced 32 sacks for the defense and a turnover differential of plus 11. Yeah, so defensively, they gave up a lot of passing yards. Like They were very much a team that could stop the run, but if you tried to attack them through the air and had a prolific air attack, you were they were in danger, which you saw that in their two losses on the year, especially in the one against Oklahoma State, which that Bedlam game was one of the best games I've ever seen. But now we can take a look at who they're returning and who they added. So the first and foremost name that's returning is their leading wide receiver and probably the best receiver or second best receiver in the Big 12. It's between Marvin Mims, the Oklahoma receiver that we're talking about now, and Xavier Worthy, the Texas receiver. But Marvin Mims is back for Oklahoma. 
They return Eric Gray, who was their receiving back last year and now their lead back. They're returning Deshaun White, their third leading tackler. And then we get into a whole lot of additions. They added Dylan Gabriel, a transfer quarterback from the University of Central Florida. They added McCade Matower, Matower, a center or a guard from the University of California, Berkeley. They added Jeffrey Johnson, a defensive lineman from Tulane. I am still in pain watching that school name. And then in terms of the coaching staff, they're adding Brent Venables as the new head coach, which who was the defensive coordinator at Clemson. They're adding Jeff Levy at offensive coordinator, who was Ole Miss's offensive coordinator with Matt Corral last year. And then Ted Roof is their new defensive coordinator, who was a Vanderbilt defensive coordinator and also worked at Clemson. Outside of that, they're also returning Key Lawrence, who is their leader in passes defended. So they added a lot this year. But uh, it was kind of by necessity. I'm going to take a drink and uh, just kick up my feet while Connor reads the losses. Yeah, this is, I think, the first or maybe second time that we've ever had to use two pages for losses. Um, Caleb Williams, obviously, uh, the, uh, the big one, really, uh, transfers to USC um, quarterback position. Spencer Rattler, um, the other quarterback, he transferred to South Carolina, the other USC. Um, and then Kennedy Brooks, leading rusher, he went to the NFL, UFA pickup at running back. Nick Benito, uh, edge rusher, coming into the year was considered to be one of the better edge rushers in the Big 12 in the country. I ended up getting second in sacks and was drafted to the Broncos. Brian Asamoah was their tackle leader at linebacker, got drafted to the Vikings. Perrion Winfrey, uh, he was an interior defensive lineman and was drafted by the Browns. Then DeLaren Turner Yell at safety. He was their interceptions leader, also drafted to the Broncos. And then we get into an even longer list on the <laughs> next page. Uh, Michael Woods, their second leading receiver, is drafted to the Browns. Uh, Isaiah Thomas at defensive end. He was their sack leader, and he also was drafted to the Browns. Marquise Hayes, a guard, was drafted to the Cardinals. Mario Williams was their fourth leading receiver. Uh, an incredible talent. Uh, I believe he was a five-star and uh, he transferred to USC. Jaden Jaden Hazelwood, he was their third leading receiver, and he transferred to Arkansas. Cody Jackson, uh, wide receiver, former four-star, he transferred. Uh, Austin Stogner transferred to South Carolina, their number one tight end. Latrell McCutcheon, a highly regarded recruit, four-star. He is a corner that transferred to USC after just, I think, his true freshman year. And then they lose a lot of coaches as well. Uh, Lincoln Riley, uh, he left for USC, as did uh, Alex Grinch at defensive coordinator, Jamar Kane at defensive end, Barry Odom at linebackers, Roy Manning at cornerbacks. All of those guys followed Lincoln Riley to USC. And then defensive line coach Calvin Thibodeau, he left for SMU. He's kind of just the outlier. Like He just, he just went to SMU. <laughs> yeah, everybody's either getting drafted or going to other power fives. And then this guy's like, I'm just going to go to SMU. Yeah, that that is a lot that they're losing because they they're losing receivers, I believe, like two through five, unless Drake Stoops is in there. No, he was almost definitely in there, but like two through five, not named Drake Stoops and losing a lot in the defensive backfield, losing a lot of their pass rush production and losing a lot of their coaching staff, especially the staff that, you know, made their defense really good, you know. 
both of the defensive linemen coaches and their linebackers coach. However, you know, that almost is entirely counteracted by the fact that Brent Venables is now the new head coach. But in terms of this year, we're caught up to 2022. They are a 3-0 team so far this year. Their first game was up against UTEP, which they blew out 45-13. And then Kent State, which they blew out 33-3. And then against Nebraska, who had just fired Scott Frost. It was a victory for them, 49-14. They have 705 rushing yards on the year at a clip of 5.5 per attempt. 797 passing yards with 9.8 per attempt. Their starter has thrown seven passing touchdowns to zero interceptions but have overall gone eight and two. They have nine rushing touchdowns, a third down percentage of 44.4 repeating percent, and their defensive third down numbers are 35.42%, averaging 42.3 points per game, 127 points for, 30 points against a turnover differential of plus four, 13 sacks, a red zone defensive percentage of 60% scoring, 40% touchdown, and then on offense, 91.7% score, 75% touchdown. So they move to be a lot more balanced this year. And do not misunderstand, everything that we are about to say, everything negative that we're about to say is simply trying to find flaws. This is a very, very good team. K-State will need to play their A game if they want to win this game. But that being said, Connor, you can go ahead and talk about offensive personnel and play calling. Yeah. So offensively, this is another Oklahoma spread team. Uh, They use absolutely every yard of their field uh, and it fits in with their personnel. Uh, They operate out of shotgun. Um, given that they are a spread team go figure yeah um they like double uh as their most popular receiving alignment uh and they do use some doubles stack as well so hopefully we're noticing that on film and getting that figured out because i know that a bunch formations last week really messed with our defense and we didn't really uh defend those as well i know it's not the same thing but it's basically we, the same thing same principle yeah. mm. so we, we we do need to make sure that we're we're looking out for that uh, then play calling uh, right now, it's a 60-40 split uh, right now in favor of running. So 60% run plays, 40% pass plays. Um, but then again, they've blown out every opponent they faced this year um, by at least 30. So it's tough to say what they would do in a competitive game. I imagine it's probably closer to 50-50 yeah. in that regard. But the whole offense is based on the RPO regardless. So there there's ideally potential for both on a lot of the plays that they run. So, and then uh, in the running game, they um, are going to do a lot of inside zone off of that RPO and they'll do some trap with a uh, pulling tackle Uh, in the passing game. They're doing 54.5% play action, uh, 18.2% of their game is screens and they run a lot of motion and they can run the up-tempo if they elect to, kind of in a similar way to where K-State uses it, uh, where they'll go up-tempo at times, but they aren't an exclusively up-tempo team. So, Yep. It's it's an interesting team, to say the least. It's, it's very much RPO. This is 
if you thought Tulane was heavy on the RPO, you have not seen Oklahoma's offense yet because it is like almost every single play is an RPO of some kind. But speaking of RPOs, we get to talk about the man under center, or I guess the man in shotgun since it's Oklahoma, and that is Dylan Gabriel, number eight. And let's start off with just him at a glance. He's a transfer from UCF. I believe he was 18 and eight as a starter at UCF. And he's worked with Jeff Levy before. He Jeff Levy was there on, I believe, the 19 team. Yeah, as of now, he has a 66.7% completion percentage, 759 yards, seven touchdowns to zero picks. And he has 16 rushes for 65 yards and two touchdowns on the ground. In terms of his PFF grades, he has an 82.3 total grade, 74.4 passing, 86.6 running. All of this goes down, weirdly, off of play action to 70.8 PFF, 72.3 pass, and 53.1 running. Now, here are two things that I really want to stress, is that when he's throwing deep this year, he is 4 for 14 with three touchdowns. So 75% of his deep shots are going for touchdowns, or at least 75% of his deep completions, but he's not completing them at a very high rate, which we'll talk about in a minute. But intermediate, he's 14 for 23 with touchdowns, with all of them being in the middle of the field. Dylan Gabriel is very much a quarterback who wants to operate over the middle of the field. So the first thing that stuck out to me for Dylan Gabriel, N-O-O-D-L-E-A-R-M, an absolute noodle arm. And I know Kleiman said, oh, he's like Kleiman in his presser earlier today said, oh, you know, Dylan Gabriel, he has such a strong arm. He was lying. He was lying. <laughs> well, why would he do that, Days? Why would he ever lie? Boost Dylan Gabriel's confidence, though he tries to throw deep and then underthrows it by 10 yards. If he'd really like to do that, he should write him a handwritten letter. <laughs> but yeah, it, the the thing with Dylan Gabriel's deep ball is it just it hangs in the air for such a long time. And when he throws it, it looks like he has to pour his entire soul into throwing it if it's longer than like 30 yards. The best example I can come up with was against the UTEP game when Marvin Mims absolutely dusted this guy on the outside, you know, as Marvin Mims does. And Dylan Gabriel just just throws his entire body into this throw and it goes like 30 yards and it's still slightly under (laughs) But... It's not the weakest arm I've ever seen out of an Oklahoma quarterback. Hello, Jalen Hurts. But that's probably why his deep accuracy is so poor. But in terms of mobility, he can make really quick cuts, and his mobility is quite good. He's not a burner. like He's not Lamar Jackson, but he can make you look stupid if you're not trying to square him up. But where he gets his bread and butter is in the quick and intermediate game. He's not going to hesitate on his throws. He's not someone who double clutches. He knows where the ball should go, and he's going to make the right decision. The only time you're going to pick him off is when his arm talent isn't enough. So you're going to have to force him to throw deep because that's when you're going to be able to beat him because he's going to make the right choice 95% of the time. If you make the right choice from a Reed's perspective throwing deep, that's your best chance to beat him. But all in all, to wrap up my long tangent here, he's the ultimate RPO quarterback. He has all right mobility, a really quick release, and he is a really good decision maker, accurate short, but 
the deep accuracy is where he struggles a little bit. Yeah, that that sums up everything pretty well, I'd say. Uh, and then he's a lefty. Yeah. That doesn't really matter. It just looks a little weird on screen. I say that as a lefty. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> like, like it's it is strange to see a left-handed quarterback throw. Uh, I feel like we just have all gotten very used to uh, the right-hand uh, quarterback, which I don't have the same issue with baseball for yeah. some reason, right and left-handed pitcher. But a lot of that's because left-handed pitchers are a lot more common than left-handed quarterbacks. Yeah. Like, uh, try to think about lefty QBs. Um, Pat White. Pat White, Steve Young. Tua. Uh, Jared Lorenzen. Tua is left-handed because his dad is beat him into being left-handed. That's right. I always forget about that. I don't. Um, <laughs> Yeah, not, the point is that there's not a lot of left-handed quarterbacks. But yeah. um yeah, we can move into running backs now. Um Eric Gray, number zero, and then Marcus Major, number twenty-four. Those are the names to know. Um Eric Gray originally was a transfer from Tennessee. Uh, he's got two thirty-seven uh rushes for two hundred eighty-six yards and two touchdowns. Uh has four catches for forty-three yards. He's got an eighty-five point one BFF grade. Uh, 70.4 in the passing game and then 85.9 running game grade. Uh, Really, really good. Um, He gets through uh, holes in the line really well. He's got a really nice jump cut uh, and he does make uh, um, or he's fast enough to burn people, but it's not necessarily to the point where he's impossible uh, to catch. Um, And he's got great acceleration. Uh, He'll 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 reach his top speed very quickly. Uh, and then Marcus Major, uh, it's his fourth year of college football. Uh, 24 rushes for 127 yards, so uh, nowhere near as efficient as Eric Gray. Uh, but he does have four touchdowns. And he has three catches for 43 yards and another touchdown. 65.9 PFF grade, 64.8 in the passing game, 66.6 in the run game. Um, he is a um, pure power back. Speed's fine, uh, and he's got decent vision, but he is 100% completely and fully a power back with a lot of strength. Um, but yeah, uh, if you know anything about this running back room, it's that Oklahoma is always going to figure it out in the running back room. It seems like they always have really strong and really talented running backs. Uh, Eric Gray, of course, is really, really good. I'm sure they're going to miss Kennedy Brooks because uh, he was really good as well. But they always seem to figure it out on this end of the field uh, or in this position group, I should say. Yeah, they they don't lose. It's like running backs and wide receivers. They don't lose anything. They just reload. Which speaking of next up is wide receivers headed by three names. That's number 17, Marvin Mims, number one, Theo Weiss and number three, Jaleel Farouk. Starting off with Mims, he has 14 catches for 310 yards, two touchdowns. 81.9 81.9 PFF grade, 84.2 in the passing game. Yeah, and to the surprise of maybe two people on planet Earth, Marvin Mims is their best player on offense. Yes, I'm including Eric Gray. Yes, I'm including Dylan Gabriel. Marvin Mims is someone who honestly has a legit shot to get his name called on day one in the first round of the draft, but he's definitely at minimum like a second or third round guy. He's legit. He really is. And it pains me to say it because I hate watching good players play against K-State, especially when I enjoy watching them play otherwise. 
which sucks because Marvin Mims plays for Oklahoma. So now I have to like something about Oklahoma, but <laughs> he, he has elite speed, elite ball tracking, and his routes are really crisp. He's truly dynamic with the ball in his hands as well. He's not a receiver that has any glaring weakness. I guess if you want to, to nitpick, I guess you can say sometimes he's inconsistent when it comes to, you know, making sure he secures the catch, maybe he has concentration drop issues. That's something I've heard people say. I don't believe it. Marvin Mims is a complete receiver through and through. And then we'll split this in half. I'll take Theo Weiss. You can take the other two receivers mentioned in the tight end. That sound fair? Sure thing. Okay. So next receiver, their wide receiver two is Theo Weiss, who is eight for 120 with a touchdown on the year. 68.8 PFF grade, 68.3 in the passing game. He's probably the grittiest of their true outside receivers because the way he runs his route is extremely physical. Like he's not trying to go around you. He his first aim is to go through you and to try and bump you off of him, which that makes him really really dangerous on things like crossing routes because crossing routes most of the time it's just body versus body. Whoever's the bigger body receiver or the bigger body just tends to win. And Theo Weiss runs the routes in such a physical way that if you give him the tiniest bit of leverage, you're not getting it back. So Theo Weiss is probably their Marvin Mims is their wide receiver one, but he's not their most physical. That belongs to Theo Weiss. Yeah, and that leaves two other guys. Uh, the first being Jaleel Farouk. Uh, he's got four catches for 67 yards and a touchdown so far this year. His PFF grades aren't phenomenal. Uh, 62.2 overall, 57.9 uh, in the passing game. But despite that, he is probably the fastest in the group. Not an absolutely incredible route runner, but they will work schemes to try and get him open. And he can be really dangerous in that regard. And then also Drake Stoops, number 12. Um, he has eight catches for 90 yards and a touchdown. And uh, from the bit I was able to watch of the Nebraska game, they do try and find ways to get him the ball uh, because he can certainly do things on a football field that football players can do. He's he's not bad at all. I'm not trying to make that assertion, but he's just he's the least remarkable, I'd say, of these guys by no fault of his own. He'd be a starter on K-State. But he'd probably um, be the wide receiver one at Christian. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Just he's got some really good other receivers around him, but he he's good in his own right, and he produces, and uh, uh, he's a guy to keep an eye on as well. Um, but that does it for the uh, receivers. Uh, now I'll cover the um, lone tight end slash fullback mentioned, uh, which is Braden Willis, number nine. He is a fifth-year senior with uh, six receptions for 63 yards and two touchdowns, trying to fill the void left by Austin Stockner. He has a 71 PFF grade, a 57.4 grade in the passing game, 86.8 run blocking grade. So really good run blocker there. Uh, He uh, will... Not only does he not stop until you're down, he immediately will continue looking for somebody else to block. Uh, he also uh, um, is actually pretty solid in space um, and his receiving acumen is 
average at best. Yeah, we'll say it's fine. Um, but he he's definitely more of a blocker uh, at tight end, which you know he he is quite good at that. But he he can do some damage in the passing game, so we shouldn't let him uh, like slip away or anything like that. Yeah, no, uh, and also I I hate the idea that we might be putting a safety on him because he will murder any safety that he has put up against in run blocking, and it 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 it's gonna it would be sad. It would be very very sad to watch. <laughs> but now it comes to my favorite part of the show, and we'll split the offensive line after the center. So you'll take right guard and right tackle, but. Let's start off with the left tackle, who is number 71, Anton Harrison. He's a three-year player, two-year starter, 66.3 PFF grade, and 80.5 in pass blocking, and a 63.9 in run blocking. His kick slide is pretty good, and he can get himself beat, but the thing is, he tries to get himself beat when he stonewalls finesse rushers rather than trying to stay in front of them. So in other words, he plays everyone like they're going to go speed to power, like try to long arm and go through him. But if he gets into someone whose number one game is speed rushing and try to beat you to the edge, <clears throat> you know, like someone who may or may not be playing on a, on Saturday. It'd be nice if he did. But <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, but he, he can get himself beat, and that's the main time that you'll see him get beat. It's also worth noting that because he's the left tackle and Dylan Gabriel is left-handed, he's not the blindside guy. So I'm not sure if that causes any shift in scheme for K-State, but it's worth noting. Now, their left guard is the transfer from Cal McCade, Metallier. It's uh, My mouth just does not want to form that name. Like, I know how it's pronounced. Oh, like Metallier? <laughs> Metallier, yeah. Number 72. He's a four-year player, three-year starter, 67.8 PFF grade, 54.5 pass blocking grade, and a 69 exactly run blocking grade. Now, getting past that nice grade, I can tell you that right now, he's going to be the player that upsets me the most. Because I was already upset watching Tulane's interior offensive line decide that the lunch money was on the players' jerseys and they were going to get that lunch money no matter what. Because they were going to hold on for dear life. And that is exactly what McCade is going to do at left guard. He's just so insanely grabby. Like his first instant, and I know that the first thing that you'll say is, oh, well, it's not holding if it doesn't get called. If a tree falls in the forest, yes, it still makes a sound. (laughs) (laughs) Yet, but it, he will hold and he will get called for holding, I hope. And he's also, you know, he's a bit of a fan of, you know, running up his forearm maybe a little bit too high to get under your face mask. So that way, you know, you're not knowing what you're looking at. Technically, it's not a penalty. You're just not a good person for doing it. (laughs) (laughs) But the next one is their center, Andrew Rame, number 73. He's a two-year starter, 67.3 PFF grade, 65.7 pass block, 67 run block. So he's pretty balanced. It seems like he's the one responsible for calling protections because he's the one who points everything out at the line and instructs everyone to do what they're doing, which is important when you have as many transfers on their line as you do. But his number one thing is that he knows he doesn't have to do his fight on the center alone. 
he will redirect the rush to whichever side isn't under attack if he has a nose tackle. So him and his guards both have a really amazing rapport with one another to where they're not going to let any of them get on a one-in-one situation. And the number one thing to note about him that's really good in his game is that he has a really, really quick first stab in pass protection to disrupt any momentum that you would normally get, you know, try to get power from the nose tackle position. He's just going to stab to one side of your body and then get back into his kick slide. Not really a kick slide, but his shuffle backwards because he's a center. But it's it's really good technique. I don't know who taught him that because it's not something I've seen a lot from Oklahoma centers before. But it's a really good move, and he's a, he's a solid center. Run blocking, eh, pass blocking alone, eh, but he's smart enough to know that he never has to do it alone. Now, Connor, you have the right side of the line. Yeah, so a right guard, they've got number 56, Chris Murray. He's a transfer in from UCLA uh, from the 2020 season. It's strange to me seeing all of these transfer offensive linemen because that's something K-State has really never done that much, Uh, especially since Kleiman's got here. I don't recall us really ever having like an FBS transfer uh, offensive line. The only transfer period, I think, has been Kingsley Ugu uh, from the JUCO ranks. Um, but yeah, five-year player, four-year starter for Chris Murray, uh, 70.7 PFF grade, 73.3 pass block and a 71.9 run blocking grade. Uh, he has a really good feel for the game and he's been able to fend off rushers without actually even looking at them. Um, and he, he's just an all around really intelligent, uh, interior offensive lineman that every, every college team wants a Chris Murray because he, he's too smart to fool with easy stuff. So he, he, he just, he won't be easily fooled and he being the veteran that he is. So, but then the last offensive lineman is Tyler Guyton, number 60. Uh, he's playing for uh, Wanya Morris right now, who is injured. Uh, Guyton is a transfer from TCU. This is his first season starting uh, 72.2 PFF grade, 75.8 pass block, and a 67.5 run block grade. Uh, he's got a really powerful first step, uh, and he is definitely a mauler at heart. Um, and then he keeps his head up very well uh, when picking up any defenders in the run game. So that right side of the line is definitely going to be one to watch. I'll be interested to see if we switch up our defensive alignment to account for the different handedness of Dylan Gabriel. Uh, mainly on the defensive line. Uh, see if we maybe move Felix to the uh, opposite side. Um, but do you have anything else to add on the offensive line, Ace? Not really. It's uh, The right tackle isn't necessarily the greatest in pass protection, at least in terms of technique. He's really someone that his, he's a true mauler. He's not a technical guy. He, he wants to kill you. That is his number one goal. You can't touch the quarterback if you're dead. <laughs> that is... As true a statement as I've ever heard. So <laughs> I, I can't make any argument against that. Yeah. Now we can move on to the long list of things to note defensively. Firstly, starting with personnel. And I I kind of did a double take before I remembered that it's Brent Venables who's in charge of this defense. Because they, they play a 4-3. Like a legit 4-3 in the Big 12. It's unbelievable. I've, I've not seen a 4-3 in years, it feels like. like. I I think they, with this, I think they may be the only defense that immediately comes to mind that 
doesn't base nickel. They have a nickel package, but I don't think they base nickel because KU bases West Virginia, Texas Tech, Texas bases 425, KU bases 425, Iowa State, Oklahoma State, Baylor, we all base 335. So, yeah, I think they're the only one who bases 3-3. I mean, 4-3, which uh, four defensive linemen, three linebackers. And, and But the thing is, is that it doesn't matter because their linebackers are so freakishly athletic. Who, who cares? They may as well be running dime. Who cares? <laughs> they line up in it. But here's the the really weird thing. And Chris Kleiman actually pointed this out, and I can corroborate this. They have lined up with basically three different defensive schemes for three different games. Their UTEP game, they were running basically exclusively four-man fronts, almost exclusively. In their Nebraska game, they were running almost exclusively three-man fronts. And then in the Kent State game, it was something completely different. It was so weird. It's like they were, okay, let's roll the dice. What scheme are we running this week? And the only thing that I can say is that it's probably just all of their scheme and they spread it out across three games so they could get used to it because Brent Venables notoriously runs a pretty complex defense. But when they're running a four down front, their strength of the formation is muddy. They'll play even. They're fans of the over front when there's an obvious strong side. And if you get them into an even look where they don't have anybody on the center in this four down front, they're bad against the run. Like they are downright bad, or at least in the games that they've played. That being said, when they switched to the three man front, which they ran against Nebraska, they switch between a stack three, three and a bear front, which basically means that they put their linebackers on the edges. When they're in this front, they're vulnerable to the outside run. And God help me, I'm going to do it, Connor. I'm going to say something I never thought I would say. This is the game where the check with me is the perfect thing to run. That is shocking. Notorious check with me hater, Ace, wants us to run that. You heard it here first. God, it's such a... St- okay, but aside from personnel, who would have guessed the Brent Venables team would be versatile defensively? Everyone, everyone could have gotten that. Connor has you for coverage numbers as well. Well, coverage scheme as well as their blitz numbers. Yeah, um, they play pretty much exclusively zone. Uh, they're mainly running cover two, three, and six. Um, their corners are not running much press. Uh, so they do have holes uh, in their coverage um, at the hash marks. And then they move a lot on the back end. And it's it, there's really not a lot of substance to that, though. Um, a lot of it is, uh, I don't know, counterintelligence, I guess, from the safety. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, they're running around trying to confuse the quarterback. They're trying much. to gaslight the QB. <laughs> Basically, yes. <laughs> um, they blitz um, a little over one out of five times, 22.35% uh, of the time they are blitzing. Um, however, you do need to uh, keep an eye out for their stunts, uh, and they'll run some end under as well. Which is absolutely frightening because that means their defensive tackles are the ones that are schemed to get over and open, and they're athletic enough to do it. <laughs> don't like that. Yeah, I don't either. <clears throat> Which, speaking of, 
We'll talk about their interior defensive line first. Now, I mentioned that Marvin Mims is their best player, but I don't think their receivers are the scariest room for K-State exclusively. The scariest room is by far their defensive tackle room. And it is led by Jordan Kelly, number 88. That is a disgusting number for a defensive tackle. And then Jalen Redman, number 31. Jordan Kelly, he's a fifth-year player, though he's only started one game. And he has three tackles, one sack on the year, 70 flat PFF grade, 72.7 run defense, 29 tackling, and he's 67.2 in the running game. And what makes Jordan Kelly so scary to me is his first step. He is probably the most explosive defensive tackle we have seen and might be the most explosive I mean, we've seen this year, and he might be the ex- most explosive that I've seen in the Big 12 since we last watched Siaki Ika, who I was far too low on, and then upon reflection realized, wait a minute, he's like the best nose tackle in the Big 12. Sorry, Huggy. You're not you're not Polynesian. <laughs> you're, you're not Siaki Ika. <laughs> There's only one Siaki Ika. But Aside from his explosiveness and his ability to run and just absolutely decimate plays before they even start, he also has a really great swipe slash rip combo that it just destroys people if you're not expecting it and if you're not ready. But outside of Jordan Kelly, you have Jalen Redmond, number 31. He's a fourth-year player who's been largely rotational throughout his career. He has five tackles, one sack on the year. 62.1 62.1 PFF grade, 71.4 run defense, 28.2 tackling, not very good defensive tackles, or, you know, tackling, 57.6 in the running in pass rush. He's athletically versatile enough to be the man who is cleared for on stunts as a defensive tackle. Don't love it. Nightmare. That is a nightmare. Dislike I, it. Yeah, I, I don't like it. Like, honestly, in just about every other team, he'd be playing defensive end. But he's also a very, very strong rusher. And he's the player that, if I had to pick one player that scares me most on this defense, it's Jalen Redmond. Because he's an interior power rusher who is known for bullying centers. Very concerning after last week. Yeah, that's 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 not good, given what we've seen from, from Gilliam so far. I hope he puts it together. I really do. Cause he's going to need to. And then the last guy to mention is in the rotation is number 77, Jeffrey Johnson, the transfer from Tulane. He has an absolutely elite first step. That's his game. His game is his first step, but Connor has you for the defensive end room. Yeah. Three names to know here. Um, starting with number 14, Reggie Grimes. Uh, he's in his third year. With, uh, he's got 10 tackles and four sacks thus far. 68.6 uh, VFF grade, 74.6. And run defense, 66.3 tackling, 62.5 rush grade. Uh, he's definitely just more of a disciplined gap secure run defender, which you can infer from those PFF grades where he does a lot better in the run defense than he does in the pass rush. Um, he's not a particularly punchy player, but he is good at two gapping in the run game and he does bring speed to the edge as well, but he does also find himself run out of the play quite a bit because of that. So it's, it's up and down, uh, with him, uh, speaking of down, we got Ethan downs, number 40, 
uh, up next. Uh, he's in his second year. Uh, he's got eight tackles, two and a half sacks, uh, 83.1 PFF grade. Uh, then a 72 run defense grade, 54.2 tackle, and an 81.1 on the pass rush side of things. So kind of the opposite archetype of Reggie Grimes, uh, at least in what his skills are. Uh, he's relentless as a pass rusher. Uh, he's going to try and knock you off balance, and then he's just going whichever way you're open pretty much after that. Um, and then he's really good at pushing the pocket from where he's at, and his push-pull is pretty impressive too. He's all around just a really good pass rusher, a lot to like there with Ethan Downs. Uh, and then the last guy, Jonah Laulu, uh, he's a transfer from Hawaii, um, and these BFF grades look kind of like those of the defensive tackles, where pretty uh average for the overall at 66.7 the run defense at 66.9 and then the pass rush is 61.3 but another really bad tackling uh rating 27.3 um he is one of the weaker if not the weakest uh links on this defense that are listed thus far uh, he is not bad whatsoever um but he plays um edge rush as if he is a basketball player uh, he wants to try and shake by you. Um, that is certainly one of the strategies of all time, and it can work, but it probably shouldn't be the go-to uh, every play unless you're absolutely elite at it, which he's not. So uh, that that does it for defensive ends. Yep. Moving on to their linebacker rooms led by three people, Danny Stutzman, number 28, David Ugbobu, in number two, and then Deshaun White, number 23. Start with Stutzman. He's the weak side linebacker, or the will in this case. He's in his second year with the team. He has 25 tackles through three games. Okay. One sack and then two passes defense. A 67.9 PFF grade, 83.1 run defense, 69.7 tackling, 52.1 in coverage. Despite being their weak side linebacker, he's the best run defender and also, without a doubt, their best blitzer. But that's pretty much his game. He he plays Will Linebacker like the stereotypical middle linebacker of the like the 1990s, where it's just the running enforcer. But you know, he's still a plus athlete. Everywhere, every position in Oklahoma is a plus athlete. So he's not worthless in coverage. He's not great, but he's not a downright liability whenever he's out there. Next up is their middle linebacker, David Ubelugbu, a four a four-year player, three-year starter. He has 19 tackles, one sack, and then a collection of grades such as 53.5 total PFF, 52.1 in run defense, 50.9 tackling, 61.5 in rushing, rush uh, pass rush, uh, and then a 54 and a half in coverage. As I mentioned before, he's the middle linebacker of the group. And as the grade indicates, he's the shakiest of the group. Everything in his game just seems a tick and a half slow. He's a tick and a half slow divert, like diverting the run. He's a tick and a half slow in coverage off of play action. But his biggest game is that he does flow pretty well with the running game if the defensive line does their job. But um, if he ever, and I mean ever, ends up in the open field pray for him it's not gonna end well for him he's he's bad in the open field which is kind of why he 
They don't really ask him to cover the flats too much. That honor belongs to Deshaun White. He's a fifth-year player and a four-year starter. And he is what they call, and I'm not joking, the cheetah position in this offense. Which, the best way to think of it is to think of it as a jack who plays Sam linebacker. The jack safety in our 3-3-5 is probably the best comparison to this position but even then, it's an imperfect one. And while I would love to talk for 30 minutes about why they're distinct and also admit the fact that uh, I don't 100% know, <laughs> it, it'd be easier to just say he has 16 tackles, one sack, and one pass defense, a 65.9 PFF, a 65.9 PFF grade, 64.4 run defense, 69 exactly tackling, a 90.2 pass rushing grade and then a 59.7 in coverage. He is quite literally, do you remember Jalen Petrie? He's Jalen Petrie. <laughs> he, he's Jalen Petrie, but bigger and playing a different position name. He's the Swiss Army Knife player for this defense. Rangy, good in space, but not elite in any aspect other than his pure athleticism. But if he's out in space as a receiver, get behind him. Because he doesn't have that feel that a safety does in those middle hook zones. He doesn't feel you behind him. So you can break open, slow down, sit down, and he won't be able to really follow you that well. But outside of that, Jaron Kanak, he's also contributing. I felt the need to point him out because the recruiting battle and also I still support Kansas kids no matter where they go. Yeah, uh, good for Jaron Kanak contributing as a true freshman, retro freshman. True freshman. Uh, no, he's a true freshman because him and Jake Clifton were in the same class because Red right. Venables really wanted Jake Clifton. Yep. Uh, yeah, Jaron Kanak, early contributor at OU. But that puts us into corners uh, where there's three names, Woody Washington, number zero, number four, Jaden Davis, and then DJ Graham, number nine. We will start with uh woody washington uh kind of the elder statesman uh in the room uh he's in his fourth year 62.7 pff grade a 55.1 run defense grade a 54.8 um in tackling and then a 64.1 coverage grade uh he's been around the block he's been there at ou for a while um uh but he does get into his own back pedal way too quickly so some of the shorter timing routes uh, can be executed on him. Uh, he, however, is really good in the deep third uh, and cover three. Um, but if he is blocked in the run game or if he's blitzing, there's not much he's going to be able to do about it. Um, but he also he loves going for the forced fumble. Maybe that explains why they had so many forced fumbles last year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as I said, he's, he's a veteran. He's been playing for pretty much his entire career as well. Uh, I, I seem to remember just a few years ago, he was playing back as like a true freshman, I think. Um, and then you get to Jaden Davis. He's another fourth year guy. Um, and then he has fairly similar grades. Uh, so what he watched in a little higher 63.7 overall 58.3 in the run defense, 62.4 tackling and a 64.3 coverage grade. Um, he has great instincts, uh, which is a blessing and a curse. Uh, sometimes he'll bite too hard. Other times he will blow a play up. Uh, it really just depends. Um, he can, uh, be baited in coverage easily. 
I can get him to open up his hips too early uh, if you um, approach him correctly. Um, and he does play a little too far inside on cover three. So the sideline could be left open in theory, not that it will matter, but he will. That That is a possibility. I say this. We had our longest pass play of the season last game. Anywho, <laughs> but uh, that leaves DJ Graham. He's in his third year. Um, he has the highest grades of anybody here. Uh, for the uh, corners uh, with a 75.4 PFF grade, a 73 in the run defense, 81.7 in the tackling department, and 74.5 in overall coverage. Yeah. And uh, he he plays just about everywhere, but he doesn't start. He's rotating in as a slot guy. Sometimes he gets some outside snaps, but he's fine. He's not quite... He he's more the traditional corner as opposed to the zone corners that Brent Venables has chosen here. But in terms of their safety room, it is two players. It's so strange not having to mention three players in the safety room, but it's number five, Billy Bowman and number 25, Justin Broyles. Let's start off with Billy Bowman, who is their strong safety. He has 24 tackles as a strong safety, two passes defense, and one forced fumble. A 76.8 PFF grade, 71.5 run defense, 64.5 tackling, and a 77.5 in coverage. And if there's a chance for him to create a 2-1 and one on coverage with him in the corner, he's taking it. He's not just going to sit in his zone doing nothing. He's one of those, the definition of he covers players, not grass. He, he's the reason why if you ever look at this coverage, it's like if you're looking at him, you have no idea what they're running because he's just going to find work. And that's probably the best aspect of his game. You can see be seen all over the field, whether it be deep, middle field. He's everywhere. He's also the obvious leader of this secondary because he's the one who you can see. If you ever see a corner like looking back at him, he's the one who's giving them the signals. Like He's the one who's the captain of the secondary. He's not the captain of the defense because he's not Marcus Calhoun, but uh, that's a pull. But <laughs> his other biggest game is he's a really big hitter. And as a consequence, wrapping up and tackling isn't his best trait. Again, he he wants to hit you and he wants to hit you really hard. Justin Broyles as the free safety. He's a fifth-year player, second year starting. He has 16 tackles, one pass defense, an 88, ugh, a 68.7 PFF grade, 64.1 run defense grade, 70.9 tackling, 74 rushing, and a 67.5 coverage. And the biggest thing to note about him is that, of course, he's a plus athlete, so he's going to be all right in center field. But in terms of how he plays, him and Jaden Davis have this really, really odd tandem to where they they understand one another and exactly what the other is going to do so if they're on the same side of the field as one another i would advise just looking the other way because of how well they they play off of one another but that pretty much is their playing and scouting report of their players and positions so now we can go into stories to watch going into the game which is just basically a series of questions. Firstly, does Colin Klein recover from an abysmal performance against Tulane? I'm going to tentatively say yes. Um, I I think the Colin Klein can and will recover. I think it's telling that today uh, at his uh, press conference, Chris Kleiman said that they did have a sit down with Adrian Martinez. 
uh, about his uh, um, lack of aggressiveness right now, which is the last we've said it before. We'll say it again. Last thing I think any case Dave Han expected uh, from Adrian Martinez this year was yeah. for him to come in timid. Um, but I, I do think that we see a more aggressive play calling experience um, this game. Uh, I'm hoping to see us take advantage of their zone uh, and the ways that you're describing here, maybe with some more timing routes, uh, especially on a guy like maybe Woody Washington uh, and maybe, maybe in other corners that they're playing as far off as they uh, allegedly are. But um, yeah, I think you can. All right. Next question. Tangentially related. Can Adrian revert back to even half of his Nebraska self? I um, hope so. <laughs> I hope so too. Um, it may take more than a week to get there, but I'd imagine that the, uh, the clock is probably ticking at this point uh, for him. And I, I'm hoping he's realizing it's his last go round and now is not the time uh, to get overly conservative with his career. So I'm hoping that he does because I want him to succeed because I think Adrian clicking on all cylinders uh, will really revitalize this team and the fan base. Um, but it remains to be seen. And I'm not quite at a point where I think I can comfortably say uh, that he will. I think he's not to prove that, but I do think that he's capable of doing that. If that makes sense. Yeah. I, I I'm with you there. I, I think he's more than capable. I think it's a mental thing. I I think that he he was told the entire offseason, he's been told his entire career, oh, Adrian Martinez, oh, he turns the ball over too much. Oh, he's so talented, but he needs to limit the turnovers. Bro, honestly, throw a pick. Just th- like first play of the game. No, oh, maybe not the first play of the game, but like maybe the second or third drive. Just like throw a pick. Get it over with. Maybe that'll help. Just get it over with. Honestly, it wouldn't hurt on a third and long, just basically arm punt. Like, and uh, just like chuck it deep. If we get the catch, we get the catch. If they pick it off, all right. Started started the uh, the process there. So it's not a goose egg anymore. Maybe there's a mental block with just not wanting the crowd reaction of the pick or something. But I don't, I don't want to speculate too much on it just because, I mean, it's impossible to know. But... Uh, I, I back to the question. I hope that he does revert to his at least part of his Nebraska self. I want there to be a marriage between the uh Adrian Martinez of old and the more cautious and wise uh elder uh Martinez. Elder Martinez. <laughs> uh, next question over under on deep completions at two and a half. I, I... I'm taking the under at two. Uh, uh, now, if you wanted to say attempts, I would take a heavy over. I, yeah. I think we, I think we attempt a lot of deep balls. I say a lot relative to what we have been doing, which is more than one per game. I, I would say we attempt four to five, and I think we connect on two. So under barely. I'm gonna take the over at three. And the main reason I say that is because this defense is still very much learning a very complex scheme that Brent Venables is running. And you saw it against 
UTEP. You saw it against Nebraska. They're going to have busts in coverage. It all comes down to Adrian Martinez throwing that ball. And it's not going to be for – if it ends up hitting on the under, it's not going to be for lack of opportunity. I'll say that. Next is will Deuce have to carry this team to victory? I think last week showed that we can't rely on him to do that. Um, We can't just have this expectation that Deuce alone will take this team to the promised land. Not anymore, at least. Uh, There's just too much of of a fixation on him from defenses. We are going to have to have some sort of complementary force, no matter who that is, uh, to Deuce Vaughn. Ideally, it's Adrian Martinez and the receivers. But... I'm going to say no. I don't, I don't think. Well, have to, probably, but I don't think we should rely on that. And I also don't know if it's, that's a winning strategy. Yeah, no. I. The, the bad thing is, is that if, if everything remains status quo as we've seen it right now, if we win this game, it would be off of the back of Deuce Vaughn and almost nobody else. I'm hoping that the status quo gets shaken up, but... I I don't know. Like I I hope not, but we'll see. Will the offensive line have a better week after a hiccup against Tulane? I think so, yeah. Uh, that's kind of like the first thing I think I feel really confident about. I do think the offensive line bounces back this week. It's a tough opponent to do it against, but I think Connor Riley can get them to stand up to the competition here. And I really want Hayden Gillum to be successful. Because uh, he he was the weak link last week, but he didn't really show that at all in the first two weeks. So I'm just going to for now believe that that was an aberration. Uh, that was just a bad week for him, an off week, and that he can improve and do better. Um, and if he has a better week, then I think the entire offensive line has a significantly better week as well. Yeah. So a, a big part of, of last week was assignments. And I honestly think it'll be a lateral move, but a lateral move might be all we really need because we're going to trade physical domination for assignment sound. So I think that they improve in that they become more assignment sound this week, but the physical aspect of the game may be a little bit more difficult. With that being said, I still think it ends up being a net positive for the offensive line against Oklahoma, which Granted, coming off the worst performance I've seen from the offensive line in years, that's you know they're not at the they're not at bedrock yet, but they have a lot of room to go up. Next question: Can K State's defense defend another RPO-based team? You see, they they're running like a somewhat different type of RPO where it's more slants as opposed to screens. With that being said, I, yes, tentatively, yes, because I think that Echo and Julius, if you put Echo on Marvin Mims and just literally don't care, the rest of the team can run zone defense all you want, don't care, didn't ask, plus ratio, plus Echo Island, plus zero catches allowed. If you have Echo, which I know is technically not our number one corner, but if you have him shadowing Marvin Mims everywhere he goes, I think Marvin Mims does not have a very pleasant day. 
But that being said, I think it's going to be another, like a little push from how they played against Tulane. I think that's fair. Um, I think they have a slightly worse game they did against Tulane. Um, not by a lot, but um, some of it will hinge on if Nate Matlick is healthy, who everybody's just kind of like waiting with bated breath um, for him to get his first sack on the year. Um, but I think that they defend pretty well, but I'm going to have to see it to believe it on stopping uh, Oklahoma. But um, I'll, I'll, I'll say that they don't do quite as well as they did against Tulane. Yeah. Next question. What will K-State's coverage approach be versus this receiving group? Um, I don't envy Klanderman. <laughs> I don't either. Um, I'd imagine there's going to be a lot of uh, deep safety play. Um, I, I like your idea of having Echo Shadow uh, Marvin Mims, but that still leaves several other very talented wide receivers uh, to account for. Uh, Julia should have a pretty solid day, I'm hoping. But then again, if they want to operate in the middle of the field, the linebackers are really going to have to step up, as will some of the safeties. So um, it's it's difficult to approach. Um, A lot of it is going to rely, I think, on the defensive line getting penetration and making life uh, more uncomfortable for Dylan Gabriel. But it remains to be seen. I'm not the guy to ask about scheming i'll say uh so i'll leave that to you no pressure no pressure so if it were me see that that's such a difficult question to answer because i don't think that k-state runs a lot of match three but if if we did, it, it would be that and match quarters. That would be my my game plan. You know, you cover the first guy that crosses your face in zone coverage. But if he doesn't cross your face, he's going outside. You drop back into your normal zone, and you have one player playing. It's called the Meg Defender, which is man everywhere he goes. You just pick a receiver, follow him, do what you can. It. But. From what I've seen of K-State's defense, what I would do schematically is rush three, hope they try to go deep, and keep one person, maybe Daniel Green, on the spy and keep the linebackers into slant, like zones where the slants would be, so like hook zones. That would be my plan, but I... I, again, I don't envy Klanderman's position. I don't. Because it's one of those situations where Dylan Gabriel's mobile enough. If you're playing true man coverage, well, he's just going to run it. If you're playing zone coverage, someone can get schemed open pretty well. But it, it, long story short, I don't know. But I have a feeling it's going to be like a hybrid, you know, same game plan we have pretty much every week. Last question, and the most important question to me, is whether we win this game or whether we lose this game. Does everyone on the team show life, and does it still seem like they've bought in? And the answer to this is, I really, really, really hope so. 
I'm going to say yes, because even when we have lost against Oklahoma and Kleiman's tenure, which has only been once now I'm thinking about it, uh, we have been excited for the game. We've clearly been bought in and focused for it. So I'm going to uh, continue with that philosophy. It seems like Kleiman's are pretty successful at getting the team ready for big games. Uh, some of the smaller ones and like overlookable games are maybe where he struggles more with getting everybody focused. Um, but yeah, I, I'm going to say that we definitely show life in this one. I think we show life in. Yeah, I, I, I think we show life. I'll just be really interested to see what happens afterwards, but now let's go into projected offensive and defensive MVPs. Once again, our offensive MVPs are matching and we both said deuce initially and then reversed it to the offensive, the offensive line. line. Yeah, so if if we are to win this game, it is on the back of the offensive line doing their job. Oh, what a stereotypical thing to say. If you want another answer, Sammy Wheeler, because their linebackers suck in coverage. But, uh, you know, Sammy Wheeler may get one catch again and then disappear off the face of the earth. I don't know. I'm going to go with the, the safe pick in the offensive line. You give me one name to pick. Uh, BB. But I think the offensive line as a unit has a much better day, plays much more assignment sound, which is what we need. Yeah, desperate, desperate need there for the offensive line to, to have a great game. Yep. And then defensively, my pick for MVP is Sincere Mason because I project us kind of having to roll down from that three safety look into having two of the safeties play middle zones or middle flats or whatever you want to call them, Tampa zones, who cares? It's the same thing. But I I really think Sincere Mason is going to have a really good day. I think he probably chalks up another interception because of how much that he'll be able to step into those passing windows and maybe, you know, maybe get a little bit of a, a baited interception for Dylan Gabriel. Neither be him or Drake Cheatham who would do it, but my pick is sincere. I went with Daniel Green because the middle of the field is going to be one of the most important parts of the game, especially since Dylan Gabriel likes to make his bread and butter there. So I'm going to say Daniel Green. Hopefully he can make it three straight weeks with an interception, uh, which I, I honestly had zero expectations from getting any interceptions. This <laughs> yeah, <year>. and <laughs> that was his first of the to- career against MU. Uh, he had one, I know maybe it was a fumble recovery. I think against like Mississippi state, like 2019, he had Are, some, so he did something against Mississippi state in 2019. I don't remember exactly what it was. I think on but, the broadcast, they said it was like his first interception of his career. So maybe they're wrong and I'm wrong by proxy. I, he definitely didn't have one last year as I recall. So there's that, but yeah, Daniel green, we need him to have a monster day. So now we get into score projections, and these are predictions. Not th- These are not what we want to happen. This is what we think are going to happen, which you can already tell is not going to be a good thing because I had to preface it like that. But for me, I'm in, I'm in such a prove-it mode with the K-State offense, and Oklahoma ru- is capable of running – such an up-tempo team that our defense might just end up getting, you know, tired again, might be getting gassed on the field. And 
That being said, I have this being a 27 to 13 victory in favor of Oklahoma. But if we won, I can't say I would be too surprised. Like I, it's not an impossible game. This is my prediction, but I can see a world where we win this game. If things go our way, if we get lucky once, if we play assignment sound football, if we limit what they can do after the catch, if Adrian Martinez throws the ball deep, goes back to Nebraska, Adrian Martinez, this is a winnable game. Oklahoma is not invincible. The dirt burglars are not invincible this year and they haven't been since we played them. And this is probably the worst team. It all comes down to what the offense can do, but that's my prediction. Connor, what do you have? Uh, I've also got the cats losing uh, 30 to 17 in this, but like you said, this is a winnable game, but I'm not going to predict them to win until we see the offense really clicking. I, I really need to see the passing game figure it out because uh, if the passing game does figure it out, then all of a sudden this team is back on track. But after the events of this past Saturday, uh, they're going to have to really show it on the field and show that they can do it. They are capable of it. Yeah. If, if we win this game, Adrian Martinez threw for 300 yards. That's, I'd allow it. Like, that That's just what has to happen. Because I, I don't think... Because the alternative is we decide that we are going to do what Colin Klein did to Texas. <laughs> We're not going to Klein or, I guess, Martinez OU. Because OU has seen Adrian Martinez before. They haven't seen him in this scheme, but they've seen Adrian Martinez before. If we win, Adrian Martinez had a great day. You have anything else to add? Um, no, I don't think I do. I think I do. All right. Well, then that wraps up this episode of the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. If you want to contact or follow the show, we are at Aggieville A Cats on Twitter. That's capital A, capital A, and capital C in cats. If you want to email us, we're AggievilleAlleyCats at gmail.com. If you'll follow us on a more, if you want to follow us on a more personal note, I am at AC Edwards 00. I am at Connor Balthazor, capital C, capital B. And before we go into the merch plug, shout out to Evan D. Shanelanilak for being an official Alley Cat and making it to the end of last episode. I don't know how you did it, but congratulations. Congratulations, Evan. But if you want to support the show financially, please be sure to check out the official Aggieville Alley Cats merch store, where you can find such designs as the staff-approved Doom Tang Clan, Play Sandstorm Cowards, and Neon Alley Cats. But most importantly, thank you all for listening to this episode of the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast. Where come rain, shine, or anything in between, we're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. Stay safe, Alley Cats.